verse 1. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 8. And what we saw the last time was Jesus as the provider of the living waters. He cries out during the Feast of Tabernacles. He wants everybody to understand in this feast of this water-pouring rite that that water, uh, don't just look at the water, don't just look at what God provided in the wilderness for the children of Israel, but look at Jesus as the author and the provider of that living water that he who believes in Christ, out of his belly, out of his insides, will flow torrents of living water. And today... Uh, is a very interesting passage of scripture, even known to unbelievers. We're only going to cover 12 verses this morning. It's the woman who was caught in adultery. And this is a really neat picture of how the Lord balances justice, which is definitely needed, especially in society, and grace. Seems to be very at odds, but they really are good friends, and they really coalesce. Together Now, for those of you who are much more advanced, and some of you have asked these questions about John chapter 8, uh, these first 11 verses weren't found in some of the earlier manuscripts. So, the, uh, so the, it was put in John chapter 8, and I believe it's, it's in there perfectly. Uh, I've heard all the arguments. The experts, so-called, believe that this is sacred scripture, but they're not so sure where exactly it fits in. I believe that it's in, a, in the right spot. Because the religious leaders uh, in verse 20, as Jesus is teaching by the treasury, which would be by the court of women, the religious leaders bring this woman caught in adultery in front of really a large audience of women who were downtrodden. They try to put Jesus in this position, in this pickle, to cause him problems. Okay, I also believe that the religious leaders purposely did this during Sukkot during the Feast of Tabernacles, where there would be much more onlookers, again, try to cause maximum damage and casualty to the Lord's ministry. Of course, it didn't succeed. Um, Thirdly, is the fact that Jesus, after he's done with the woman and deals with the sin issue, he basically tells them that he's the light of the world. Anyone who believes in him would not walk in darkness. So how do we deal with our sin? Well, it only can be through Jesus Christ. Uh, And the world tries many ways to deal with the sin issue, but the Lord, God, does not accept it. Uh, The only way we can stand in his presence, either when we die or when he's done with human history and we stand before him, is that our sins have to be dealt with. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. So it's a very interesting portion, and I only wanted to take the first 12. I don't want to rush through this uh, because this is a very important chapter, and as all of them are, and I find myself breaking them up more and more as I do these studies. So starting with verse 1, John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. A little amusing, actually. But early in the morning, a few things happened. This was Jesus' MO, so to speak, his modus operandi. He came to the temple, especially as it was getting closer to his crucifixion. 
The maximum amount of hearers had to hear God's plan of salvation. He wanted them all to be saved. Two, the people came to him. And three, he taught them. This was Jesus' style. And this was actually, I'm going to give you, uh, read to you two verses. Jeremiah 3, 14 and 15. That actually, when Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, had read these, he meditated on them, and that was his vision for Calvary Chapel. And, and I'll go through them. Jeremiah three fourteen. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. See how importantly he takes marriage. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. At the time, denominationalism was, was rampant and everybody was you know, standing firm in their denomination. But not a whole lot of the word was going out throughout the pulpits. And his vision was to have more of God's word. This is God's word. If we're going to have a denomination or a doctrine or take a stand, it better be based on what God says in his word. So this is what's going on. We must know our Bibles. You see, to know God's heart is to know God's word. And knowing God's word is knowing God's heart. It inoculates us from false teaching, from deceptive doctrines. The answer is right here. It also inoculates us from sometimes when we're moved by our emotions that make us think different things. I wake up and, you know, it's a, it's a cloudy day. I'm feeling glum and depressed. And maybe I color my day based on that, that attitude that I woke up with. Or I wake up and it's a beautiful sunny day and the birds are chirping and I'm feeling happy and excited. And I color my day based on the emotions that I woke up with. Emotions can be deceptive. We always need to go back to the Word. And the Word explains salvation and God's plan for our lives. Verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, religious leaders, teachers, uh, part of the upper echelon of society, brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, and they go on. Now, I like to read the Bible and just picture what was going on at the time. Where was everybody standing? What was the mood? What was the backdrop? Uh, so you got these religious leaders that come to Jesus, and they find a woman caught in adultery in the very act. Now, that seems a little suspicious to me that they looked for something to happen and to uh, take her at that moment. Now, the Greek word for caught can also mean taken, seized, or dragged, probably barely clothed. No mercy, only humiliation for this woman. Now, the obvious question that everyone asks, I don't care who teaches this, is what happened to the man? Did he escape? Did they let him go? Because they did appear to be chauvinists as we go through God's word and we understand the historical uh, context, or check this out was he part of the plot? Was he set up to seduce her? And then, when things got going, religious leaders come in, it was, it was a setup. And then they let the guy go because he's part of the plot. I don't know, the Bible doesn't answer that. But I will tell you that stoning was in God's law, and I'm going to cover some of that. But Leviticus 20 says if a man and a woman are both in the act of adultery, that they both are to be stoned. Deuteronomy 22 says, if a man forces a woman, then only he is to be stoned. So where's the man? We look at the sin that David, King David, committed with Bathsheba, the adulterous situation. God held David much more accountable 
He even spoke about the sword not departing from David's family as a result of his sin and deception and murder of the woman's husband. He held David more accountable. God is a fair God, and we must understand that. But the religious system at the time apparently didn't get the memo on fairness. You see? I'm going to interject a little bit of self-righteousness, not my own. (laughs) You have to be careful with your wording. Into the message this morning. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about uh, justice, crime, punishment. We're going to talk about mercy, grace, forgiveness. We're going to talk about how justice and grace can work together. So we're going to speak about a lot of things, but we're also going to speak about self-righteousness. Now, what's that? If you're in religion for a while, or even if you're in a good church, and you're in faith in a while, and some time passes, and you forget what you were saved from, you forget what you did wrong, you forget your sins, we forget sometimes that we sin on a daily basis. And then we look at somebody else coming in the church. And now it's our time to point the finger at them. That person, this person. I can make a point my finger at everybody and say why I'm a better Christian than they are. Or why I belong in this church and they don't. And this is what happened with the religious system. Even the last few verses, he said, these people don't know the law and they're accursed. They looked at the common person as fools, as simpletons, as beneath the religious echelon. So self-righteousness and hypocrisy are going to come into our sermon this morning. Verse 5. Now Moses, they told Jesus, in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This was a brilliant plot by the religious leaders, really brilliant, if you think about it. If you didn't know the end to this, we could all ask ourselves, well, what if they said that to me? What would I do? I'm in an untenable position. It's a no-win situation for me. Quite devious. If the Lord said, oh, well, if the law of Moses says to stoner, then stoner. Two problems with that. Number one, Genesis 49, 10, which is a time-sensitive prophecy, all the way back in the book of Genesis, prophesies that when the Messiah come, the scepter would depart from Judah. The Jewish people would not be able to rule themselves uh, completely. Capital punishment would be taken from them. So if Jesus had stoned her, he actually would be breaking Roman law. He'd be arrested prior than he was supposed to be, and this causes all kinds of problems for prophecy. The second issue is that it would have hurt his witness to the downtrodden. Right? He came for what society looked at as the low of the low, the sinners, the base people, the downtrodden. He came for them because a lot of the upper echelon people were doing too good to listen to him. So that would have hurt his witness with them if he said stone her. Impossible position. If Jesus would have said, well, don't stone her, hey, they invoked Moses. How could you be the Messiah if you're anti-Moses? They would also look at him as a lawbreaker. Are you saying that there shouldn't be justice? An amazing position that they put the Lord in, and we'll see how he handles them. Just a little side note. I've noticed, and we're going to see this again a little further on in John 8, Abraham's name is going to be invoked. Moses' name is invoked. What happened, religion or the spiritual system became more focused on men than it came on God and God's word. It had become man-centered. It had become humanistic. It had become patriarchal, rabbinical. Now, we can see the same thing in 2,000 years of Christianity, can't we? Where the first century fathers, where Augustine, where Calvin, where Luther, a lot more of these guys are quoted from the pulpits and less of the word of God. 
That's why they rejected the spiritual reform Messiah. Because Jesus, this is what the Jewish people wanted at the time, and you really can't blame them. They were under the yoke of the Romans. And they wanted to be free from Roman oppression. Romans were pagans. They were polytheists. They were, um, you know, pork eaters. They were all the things that the Jewish people despised. So their Messiah, they wanted him to come and wipe the yoke of slavery off of the Jewish people. Get rid of the Romans. Because they were focused on this world. We want it really nice, but we want it in this world. And Jesus said, no, I'm trying to reform you spiritually. I'm trying to reform your hearts. Well, we don't want that. Now, I would look today at the doctrine of the harpazo or the rapture. Many in Christianity, even though it's in 1 Thessalonians, even though it's spoken about by Jesus and, and uh, the Apostle Paul and, and many other Bible writers, we don't want the rapture either. Today, why? Because we like the world. You find me, nine times out of ten, a person that despises the doctrine of the rapture, and I'll find you somebody who's doing really well in this world. Kingdom now theology, we want it now. We don't want the Lord to take us out of here. Things are going too well. It's this focus on the, wor- on the world that God's people, unfortunately, have. Verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. (laughs) He didn't owe them an answer, as if to say, I'm ignoring you. (laughs) I don't have to answer you. Now, many speculate what was Jesus writing on the ground, and I've heard so many things. I mean, Jeremiah 17, 13 is an interesting scripture if you listen to it. Those who depart from me, from God, shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Very appropriate. Some think that maybe Jesus was writing the sins of the mob that was accusing her, starting with the oldest man, because the older one dropped their stones and walked away first. Uh, Some think that Jesus wrote mercy in the ground or hypocrisy or some things that would have gotten their attention. Who knows, maybe he was drawing caricatures of them and stick figures with funny faces. You know, we don't know. We can only speculate. But Jesus is in a quandary. And how's he going to get himself out of it? I have at times pulled things out of this pulpit. Um, Chainsaw, a machete a few Wednesdays ago if you were here for it. I think I could fit a small economy car in there possibly. But today we have a stone. This is a real stone. And as I start talking, I'm going to hold this stone. And I'm hoping that as I talk about this stone, you find it loathsome. So I'm going to talk about stoning. Now, some pastors might say, I don't know if that's a good idea. But we're going to talk about it. And I know those in the front are probably hoping, especially at open-toed shoes, that I don't drop this stone on their foot. Because this stone weighs quite a bit of weight, and it can do some, some damage. But this would be the size and the shape of a stone that was used in stoning. Unfortunately, stoned has taken on a different meaning in our culture. I don't know how it got there. Maybe because when you're stoned, it's like you got hit in the head with rocks. (laughs) But the bottom line is, this is stoning. Um, Stoning was done in public, and the person would be by themselves, and those who were stoning that person, it would start with the accuser. Uh, The accuser, the person who witnessed it would raise their hand first and throw the first stone. Offensive, isn't it? 
It was done in public. This was under God's law, by the way. Public, hopefully that it would, it would cause a deterrent. With the witness or the accuser throwing the, the first stone, and you had to look into that person's eyes, hopefully it cut down on false accusations. So in, woven into God's law was really some brilliance in this, um, you know, in this type of capital punishment, in a sense. I went to a call last year, because today, what? We, use, we don't use stones, really. We use bullets. Pull a little trigger, and you could be 50 feet, 100 feet away, and take a person's life and not even see their eyes when you do it. I went to a call last year. I was the first officer on the scene. Man got shot five times. The first bullet was obvious where the blood was coming out, but the other four, he was a very big man, and it was a small caliber weapon. So the flesh enveloped the cavity where the bullet had gone in. So it was very hard to find, very little blood, if any. However, stoning, when you would hit that person, even if they would put their hands up, probably break their bone, then you would hit them again in the head until they died. Very graphic. Stoning was used in the case of murder, rape, elder abuse, a false prophet, false prophecy, God took his word seriously, blasphemy, and adultery. Now we look at, uh, now again, we live in American society, so there's some things that we accept. We shouldn't accept. And you're going to find the more you find this stone loathsome and you hear about stoning, it's going to bother you. But it's because we're brainwashed by American society. You see, adultery, big deal. Everybody does it. Leads to divorce, broken homes, broken families. But there's no fault divorce in New Jersey. So there's not even any consequences for adultery. So we look at this and we, we shake our heads and say, why, Lord? We don't understand it. God takes marriage very seriously. We don't as Americans. And unfortunately, a lot of that has come into the church and infected the church as well. So we look at this stone and we ask ourselves, why would a loving God allow something like this? Well, here's the answer, justice. Justice can be cold, it can be harsh, it should be blind. And towards the end of the sermon, I'm hoping that I would have made the case to rectify justice with grace in what the Lord does. So justice, number one, preservation of society. When we look at the Canaanites and the Sodomites and God had to destroy them or use the children of Israel to destroy them. When they did excavation of the Canaanite homes, they found that most of the homes in their little apartments, they had little urns filled with children's bones. Parents would kill their own children, sacrifice them to their gods, take their bones, put them in an urn, and bury it in their home because it gave them good luck. Things were happening to children, uh, relations with animals. It was it's things I can't even mention in detail. But you get the picture. Society was completely infected by sin and evil. So God at some point said, every facet of society is infected, need to wipe them out. Not because they're different, not because of ethnicity or color, but because sin had totally permeated these societies. So justice is for the preservation of society. Justice is also to prevent vigilantism. And that was very clear in God's word. He didn't want vigilantism. There were cities of refuge where an accused person could run until the proper court case would find its way through. He did not want that. When we're disgusted with the criminal justice system, we look towards vigilantism. Now, do you ever wonder why Death Wish and Dirty Harry, remember Clint Eastwood? And even Batman, why is it so popular? Because do you ever wonder why you pay money to go see a movie? Because deep in our hearts, we have a sense of justice. Yes, well, Pastor Joe, I didn't know why I go see the movie Batman. 
Because deep in our hearts, we've been ingrained, it's intrinsic, that we want to see justice done. Now, here's the interesting thing about justice. If Russ and I commit the same offense, I want to see, I want to see Russ punished. He's a nice guy, but he's got, to, he's got to face the music. When it comes to me, no, 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 I don't want justice. I'll take forgiveness and grace for 500, Alex. Thank you very much. You know what I'm saying? So justice is funny because it always looks better on somebody else than the person in the mirror. So we're, we're talking about this here. So we have preservation of society, vigilantism, and also the fact that there needs to be consequences for sin and evil. Now, today, there doesn't seem to be much. Again, adultery, divorce, nobody's at fault, no problem. You go your way, I'll go mine, and that's the end of it. And that's sad. It really is. There doesn't seem to be consequences. I'll tell you this too, that a lot of things that happen in society infect the church. I'm aware of some popular youth ministries where youth pastor is using profanity and talking graphically about sex. Not here. <laughs> Not on my watch. But it, it's out there, and it happens. Because instead of talking about consequences for sin and evil, well, we want to be cool, or we want to be like the world so we can get more people to come into our ministry. That's a problem. I'll just sum it up quickly in my Facebook post that I put on the church website. And I said that it's a sad day in society when we don't take personal responsibility. Number one, man goes into a movie theater, you know, mows down 50 people. We say that he's crazy. Crazy. He can't help it. There's something wrong with him. This, the guy planned this for weeks and months. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. Somebody who's a pedophilia, someone who's a pervert. What do we say in society? Think about the words that are used. They're sick. They can't help themselves. They'll go out and do it again. We need to put them somewhere and take good care of them. We need to put them somewhere, all right, but not where they're being put. The third group is someone who's a, an addict or a junkie, stealing from their parents, putting their loved ones' lives through a living hell, and we say that they have a disease. Do you realize that all these terms take away personal responsibility? And this is the society they're moving towards. Now, some of you today are offended by what I just said. But Le Leonard Ravenhill said it the best, and he lived in the... Uh, early part of the 20th century. He said, if Jesus Christ preached, preached messages like ministers did in his day, it's not even our day, that he would have never been sent to the cross. Think about that. Sin, evil, these concepts need to be spoken about from the pulpit as hard as it is to hear. Because I'll submit to you that when we speak about what we're saved from, salvation looks a whole lot better when I realize what type of person I am. Thank you, Lord, for that grace and mercy. And we'll cover that. We're offended by this stone. God's offended by sin. Okay, verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, 
Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is brilliant. He did not say not to stone her. Do you realize that? He didn't say she wasn't guilty. Romans 13 is in the New Testament. Sometimes the liberal theology people in the media forget this. Read Romans 13. Even in the New Testament, God says that the government has the right to institute capital punishment for the preservation of society. It speaks about swords of the arm of the government. doesn't speak about electric chairs and bullets, but you get, you get the idea. You get the hint. All he asked them to do was line up by sinlessness. Now, he could see, he could smell the hypocrisy on them. These guys were regularly in a corrupt society. They were corrupt. They were uh, oppressing the people, taking money from them. They were a very oppressive religious system, holding the people down. And they had to nerve to find this woman and be sanctimonious about having her stoned. Again, his request was not unreasonable. Go ahead, do it. Line up by sinlessness. Again, Deuteronomy 17, 13, Leviticus 24 said that the accuser, the witness, must cast the first stone. Now, in our jurisprudence, as much as we don't want to admit this anymore in America, but a lot of our concepts come from the Bible. Whether it's capital punishment in the form of electric chair or whether it's in the form of lethal injection or whatever is being administered, the jury who convicts that person to death has to watch the execution. That's fine. You cast your vote. I hope you really, in your conscience, have made up your mind that this person is guilty because you're going to watch the execution. So it's not one for one, but it's, there's a similarity there. It's very interesting. Verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Convicted by conscience. Now that's a good sign. We know that some of these religious leaders later were one to the faith. It would be a really bad sign if none of them were convicted and they all stayed there and carried it out. I need to switch gears for a moment. The religious leaders can be a picture of self-righteous Christians. This is everything that the world hates about Christianity. Next to up there with they just want my money is they're self-righteous. I didn't feel welcome. I was getting a lot of leers and stared at. I felt like I didn't fit in. Persons come in with piercings, tattoos. They look like they're from a broken home. They're not dressed properly. This is the world. Let them come in, for heaven's sake. This is everything about the church that the world hates, but everything and everyone that Jesus tried to bring into the fold. Shannon Gallatin, my wife, shared with me a, a women's uh, retreat, and Shannon Gallatin, a wife of Bill Gallatin, Calvary pastor, was one of the speakers. And I said to her, when she told me what she said, I said, say that again, I've got to write that down. She said, if you don't think you have much to be forgiven for, your sin is self-righteousness. Yeah. When we look in the mirror every day as a believer and say, I'm great, I've arrived. You know, God needs me. I'm wonderful. That's where we get into trouble. She also went on and said, sometimes I find it easier to work with those who have been delivered from much in terms of sin than those who grew up in the Christian home or the Christian culture. I applaud her for that. I say this, bring them in. We're a church that accepts anyone. You have friends 
and you, you want to, before you get to me, and maybe there's too many people, and you want to ask me, well, my friend is this. Well, my friend believes that. Well, my friend looks like this. Well, they have blue hair. I don't really care. Bring them in. Will that increase church drama? Sure it will. If you came in late last Sunday, there was a little bit of drama out in the parking lot because we're very accepting. It was handled in an appropriate manner. So if you were late, you're, some of you are smiling. You probably saw it. It's okay. It's okay. You know, I'm sure Jesus had his hands full as well. But this is the model that we follow. Are we self-righteous or are we accepting? From the oldest to the youngest, they started to drop their stones, probably, and depart. What's really sad to say is that Christianity over the years, when it grew in popularity, when it became dominant in the Roman Empire, when it became powerful, they picked up their stones again. Church history is not pretty. The Inquisitions, some of the Crusades were defensive, some of them were offensive and very offensive. Uh, Torture chambers found in some churches in Europe still to this day. They were trying to eradicate whole people groups that didn't agree with what they were doing. They took up the pharisaical mantle of the one that, the, the same mantle that Jesus was trying to remove. Verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This appears to be the first time Jesus speaks to this accused woman. Can you imagine her standing there and hearing the dialogue and wondering, well, what's this Messiah guy going to do to me? You know, probably thinking if, if, you, if you or I were her, we probably thought, oh, I'm done. The fix is in. It's over. Curtains. Lights out. But Jesus was the son of God. He already knew the facts of the case. And he has two questions. Number one, where are your accusers? And number two, has no one condemned you? Well, neither do I. John 3.17, after 3.16, they said that uh, Tim Tebow puts the black, you know, I think they told him now not to do it anymore, but the black um, stuff under his eyes so that the, to prevent the glare, and he would put in real fine writing John 3.16. And what they were saying, this article said that, I don't know how they know this, but approximately 92 million fans or pe- people around the world have search engined John 3.16 and heard the gospel Because of Tim Tebow's, um, God bless the guy, keep praying for him. Because when you're in that type of position, man, you you can't imagine the temptations that the devil is trying to constantly assault him with to get him to fall, to make him look bad. John 3.17, right after that, says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. That through him, Jesus, the world might be saved. Awesome. Good stuff. So... Expecting to be stoned by an angry mob, this woman was pardoned and probably thought she probably didn't, she was probably in shock. It probably took her a while to get her legs moving to walk home. She couldn't believe that she was free. Imagine yourself in that position. But the story isn't over because we didn't deal with the sin issue yet. I will say to you that regardless of the religious hypocrisy, the woman was guilty. And guess what? We're guilty as well. That's why we need a savior. Jesus didn't say, don't worry about it. Jesus didn't say, don't worry, I'm not going to tell the father. He didn't say like Snooky at Rutgers, party on. Okay? He said, leave your life of sin. Don't do it anymore. Now, in John chapter 5, when he healed the paralytic man, this poor disabled man, he healed him, the man's walking, everything's great. He said to the man, 
Now, don't sin anymore, or a worse thing may happen to you. How insensitive to say that to the poor man, the disabled man for 38 years. But it was something that needed to be said. Because sin is the reason that we die. Sin is the reason we go to funerals and say goodbye to our loved ones. Sin separates us from God and from each other. Sin causes us to be be sick. Death is a cessation of a non-negotiable function of a a part of the physiology of the body. So sin needs to be dealt with. We need to have a discussion about justice, punishment, but also mercy and grace. I want to read to you uh, Warren Wiersbe. He quoted something pretty aptly in his book, Be Alive. He says this, The law was given to reveal sin, Romans 3.20, and we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by God's grace. All these jokers preaching this soft Christianity from the pulpit Big deal. Salvation? Every day we take, every day, you know, I've never had a problem with my eyesight. Every day I wake up, I see the sun. I take the sun for granted. But the persecuted pastors, like Richard Wombrand and others, that have been put in solitary confinement for 10 years for preaching the gospel, and they're in a dark, dank, stinky cell, the first day that they go out and they see the sunlight, they rejoice because they haven't seen the sun. Light is beautiful to them because they've been in darkness in that cell. But I personally take the sun for granted for 44 years of my life. So salvation is not as sweet. Grace is not as beautiful until we're first condemned by by the law because of our sin. He goes on. Law and grace do not compete with each other. They complement each other. Nobody was ever saved by keeping the law, but nobody was ever saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. There must be conviction before there can be conversion. Amen? Right? We have to speak about the whole picture. And again, in the media, they'll take these quotes out of context. Oh, he was without sin cast the first stone. That's part of one verse. You know what I'm saying? We need to speak about the sin issue. When we look at John chapter 3, Nicodemus, he had the sin of omission. Jesus said, you're a great teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And you're not teaching these things about how to be born again? He was convicted by his sin of omission, his lack. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus was gentle with her. He built a beautiful bridge with her. But he convicted her of her sin, her relationships with men. But she was ready to hear it at that point. In John chapter 5, the man who was healed, who was a paralytic, he had to deal with the sin issue. Otherwise, the worst thing is going to happen to you. You know, maybe Jesus wouldn't be quick to help him at that point. I don't know. And here, this woman was all ears. And I would ask you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your sin is unbelief. If you refuse Jesus and reject him and resist salvation, you are condemned other than the sin of disbelief. That's very clear in the scripture. And my question to you is, what are you going to do about it? Jesus ministered to this woman. She answered, in this simple answer, she told Jesus where she was at with him. Has anyone condemned you? No one, comma, courier, Lord, Master. Wow, there's an epiphany right there in that small section. Mercy led to the discussion about sin. She was all ears at that point. I can tell you this, 
that I can identify with this woman caught in adultery. Some 17 years ago, I lived a life of sin. And I had lived that life for some 20-something years. And if I died in that state, I would be condemned. I'm so thankful that the Lord kept sending men and others into my life to keep speaking to me about the, the gift of salvation. But similar to this woman, Jesus refused to raise his hand with this stone to crush me. He refused to condemn me at that point. Instead, he chose to show me grace. But he also asked me to leave my lifestyle of sin. And here I stand before you, my justice paid for at the cross some 2,000 years ago. I am a testimony to forgiveness and grace. And that's why, till my dying breath, I will serve the Lord. If not in this pulpit, out on the street, or somewhere, I cannot stop talking about the Lord. Because I know what he did for me. It puts me in my place. I never forget where I came from. I can never get self-righteous because my wife will remind me where I came from. <laughs> Do you see how it all fits in? How many of you, raise your hand, are a testimony to justice but mercy and grace? Raise your hand. Isn't it a great feeling? And even if we, just for a moment we just bask in that, and are thankful for what he's done in our lives. The more offensive this stone is to us, the more we have to understand how offensive it is, sin is to God. It not only ruins our personal walks, it ruins our marriages, it ruins our families. You see the concentric waves that go out into the community, and eventually society is destroyed by sin. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Here's where it all comes together. He says to the woman, leave your life of sin. If I was her, I might have said, but how? Show me the way. I don't understand. He says, I am the light of the world. Focus on me. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness. Brothers and sisters, this morning, justice is good. It keeps us in line. It preserves society. It helps us not to hurt others. But I've got to tell you, there's laws for everything now. I, my son is on the autistic spectrum. And there's a law coming out. I believe it's in New Jersey. Whether it was passed or not, I'm not sure. But it's being juggled around. And it's to make it a, an offense or a crime if you tease an autistic kid. Now, with my son on the spectrum, I pull my hair out. I understand the good-natured part of the law, but here's the fact, we need a law for everything. Did you ever look at the list of the federal, state, and local laws, municipal laws? We need every law to keep us in line because we're sinners. When are they going to realize in government that it's because we keep pulling Jesus out of the school, we pull him out of the court systems, we pull him out of public life, we can't show a display in, uh, in, in a public settings, and we're getting worse and worse and worse. To now we have to be told, don't torment that kid. You see kids on YouTube beating the snot out of other kids. I, I wouldn't do that as an adult, and it would, it would grieve me to think about it. But we have to have more laws made to keep us in line because we don't have the light of the world in our hearts in society. And brothers and sisters, as the church, 
we need to be that light because our society is rotten. I'm listening and I'm reading some articles from um, uh, Charles Stanley and other Bible teachers, and they're grieving over society. What we're turning into, we're turning into monsters. The only solution is Christ, the light of the world. We're bumping into each other. We're in darkness. We're stumbling over things. We're hurting each other. We need that beacon of light to show us the way and guide us. Right? Amen. (laughs) I'll ask you this morning. Are you following the light of the world? Do you still believe that you are without sin? I believe we made the case that we're not. I guarantee you on any given day, not only are we violating God's law, but we're, we're violating some law, some traffic law, some, some law, you know. It's just the way we are. We're lawbreakers by nature. This morning, will you receive the pardon for your sin and taste of the juicy, sweet fruit of grace and salvation and forgiveness? And even as a believer, if you're new to this church, trust me, I still sin. And I still get to taste the fruit of forgiveness and grace every day when I confess my sins and know that it's gone. Sometimes we still hold on to those sins, but God has left it at the cross. Will you forsake your self-directed life? Will you trust him? as your Lord and Savior, and follow the light of the world every day of your life, you take that first step today. Let's pray. Father.